Uh, so we're on part 23, uh, believe it or not. We've only got, uh, I think, two more after this uh, in this quarter uh, to finish off Genesis 1 to 11. So um, normally, if I'm teaching a class during uh, uh, Black History Month, I like to do some biographical sketches. And so I'm going to start off today with a couple, with this one bio, biological, uh, biographical sketch. Who here has heard of Phyllis Wheatley? So a few, a few have heard of Phyllis Wheatley. A, a remarkable uh, woman, this, this Phyllis Wheatley. Uh, she was born around 1753. Um, she was the first African-American author of a published book of poetry. Uh, she was born in Gambia in West Africa. She was stolen from her parents at the age of seven. So she was kidnapped at the age of seven and sold into slavery um, and brought to America. Um, and she came to Boston, and she was a, a slave to a tailor named John Wheatley. Um, he purchased her as a servant for his wife, Susanna. Uh, she displayed intelligence even as a young child. She learned English very quickly and began reading and writing poetry. Uh, the, the Wheatleys were members of probably the most famous church from early America, the Old South Meeting House or the Old South Church in Boston. And they brought Phyllis to church with them. She was baptized at the age of 18. Uh, and then she received renown from publication of her poetry in England. They weren't initially published in America, but they were published in England uh, in 1773, her poems. Uh, so she was around 20 years old. When a book of her poetry was published in England, and it was published, it, the, the, it was called Poems on Various Subjects, Religious and Moral. Uh, so it was religious poetry that she wrote. Um, then they, uh, people here in America didn't believe that this young slave girl had actually written the poetry, so they got 18 uh, intellectual elites together to quiz her to see if, they could, if it really was this girl that had written the poetry, because they wouldn't believe it. Um, but they, they determined, oh yeah, this, this girl is really sharp. Um, and um, so the only way she was able to be published, she wasn't able to be published here in the U.S., it was over in England, and it was the, with the help of this lady who was a devout follower of Christ, an evangelical follower of Christ, Selina, Countess of Huntington, who kind of took up the cause of Phyllis Wheatley in order to get her poems published. Um, and so she was given her freedom after that, after her poetry was published, um, and her, so her owners in Boston gave her freedom. Um, this, is an, this is a picture of the, the book, the book of poems. Poems on various subjects, religious and moral. That's a painting of Phyllis Wheatley there that's in the front cover of the book. Um, published originally in um, 1773. And here's one of the poems that she wrote. So this is a poem by Phyllis Wheatley. "'Twas mercy brought me from my pagan land, taught my benighted soul to understand that there's a God, that there's a Savior too, once I redemption neither sought nor knew. So think about this young lady. She's kidnapped from her family at the age of seven and sold into slavery. But she looks back over her life and she writes a poem that says, 
twas mercy that brought me from my pagan land. Who does that remind you of in the Bible? Joseph, exactly. So Joseph was stolen. He was kidnapped and sold into slavery in Egypt. And later in Genesis chapter 50, Joseph specifically says, you meant it, his brothers are terrified of him at this point. He says to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And so Phyllis Wheatley is able to have this same exact attitude as Joseph did. Even, even something as awful as being kidnapped from your family and sold into slavery, she sees as the hand of God and, and a merciful thing in her life. So a remarkable woman, not, not terribly well-known here in the United States, but she should be. That's Phyllis Wheatley. Wheatley. Okay, so uh, what we will learn today. So... We're going to continue with this idea of a clash of worldviews. We started examining it last week, and we're going to talk more about science. I, I mentioned science a little bit last time. I'm going to talk more about it uh, today and uh, the role of science. Uh, the seed sown by Darwin sprouts as eugenics and racism. Um, if only eight people were on the ark, where did all the races come from? Uh, what does the ter- term race even mean? Uh, We'll look at the modern science of genetics and how it confirms the biblical account. We'll look uh, again at the Bible's historical account of the Tower of Babel. We covered that before. We're going to look at it again uh, today and how it uh, plays into this idea of races and people groups around the world. Uh, The fact is that Babel explains the different people groups that we see around the world and he explains the different languages and language groups. We, we talked about that once before, and we'll, I'll, I'll talk about it again a little bit in today's context as well. And then we'll wrap up by talking about an application of the unity of the Spirit and the fact that we're one in Christ. So what's the spiritual consequence of this biological fact that we are, are one race descended from uh, one family? that came off the ark. There's a spiritual dimension to that. There's a spiritual outworking of the fact that we are one in the spirit. Okay, so uh, let's take a review a little bit, uh, go back and talk about what we did uh, the last time. Um, Okay, so what we talked about last time. So we talked about this uh, clash of worldviews in our culture, two competing, uh, the big worldviews. There are, uh, of course, other subsets and other kinds of worldviews, but there are two main ones that we're talking about as a clash of culture. The biblical worldview that the natural world was created by God, who therefore, because he created it, has authority over his creation, including us, part of his creation. And therefore, he and he alone has the authority to make rules about what is right and wrong. We're created in the image of God, uh, moreover, and therefore above other living things in value, and we have an immortal soul. So the people are different from the rest of creation because of this fact revealed to us in God's word that we're created in the image of God. Um, now, in spite of the fact that we're created in the image of God and have infinite value because of that, people are also sinful and in rebellion against God. So those are the two main facts about people. Created in the image of God and therefore worth an infinite amount and also at the same time fallen, sinful, rebellious against God. Okay. Uh, And people can be saved by a gracious act of God, the Creator. So we have a perfect creation originally. Genesis 1.31 tells us it's all very good. 
Then in Genesis chapter 3, we have the fall, and the fall brings with it death, disease, pain, suffering, guilt, shame. Uh, but God had a plan, a plan of redemption to redeem mankind from the effects of sin through Christ Jesus, and in the end will restore all things, and there will be a new heaven and a new earth. So that's all of history in one slide right there, from the beginning all the way to the end. Um, so what does the Bible teach about the history of mankind, made in the image of God, therefore valuable? Uh, Adam created from inanimate matter, not the result of an evolutionary process. Eve made from Adam. Uh, the entire creation very good originally, then rebelled and fell. Um, and everyone alive today, uh, and everybody who's ever been alive, is descended from Adam and Eve. And therefore, we're all relatives, and there are no such thing as races. There's only one race of people. Uh, since the fall, people have been characterized by rebellion against God. We've engaged in wicked and sinful behavior individually and collectively. Uh, because of the wickedness of mankind, God decided to destroy the world, and only eight people were saved in the ark. Uh, after the flood, God commanded Noah and his family to spread out. They disobeyed that command, clumped together at, uh, in the plain of Shinar, built a city and built a tower, uh, but God spread them out. And everyone alive today is descended from Noah's family only a few thousand years ago. So we're all very close relatives, everyone that walks the earth. Uh, and therefore, we're only one race. The secular humanist worldview is that the natural world came into existence by itself for no reason and with no cause. Uh, therefore, there can be no ultimate source of right and wrong. Uh, men and women are the product of evolution, like all ever living things. Uh, most recently from ape-like ancestors, and therefore have no special value. And when we die, that's the end of us. Uh, but people are basically good, but can be more or less perfected by the right external circumstances. So the big contrast is the biblical worldview sees people as infinite value but fallen. The secular worldview sees people as of no value, intrinsic value, but basically good. Uh, it's totally opposite. Um, and so the, the standard secular view is from goo to you by way of the zoo. So start with goo, end up with you by way of the zoo. So uh, this is a clash of worldviews. These two worldviews don't fit together. Um, and so it, it does matter which of these lenses through which you view the world. You view the world from that perspective that people are just the product of evolution and of no special value, or do you view the world from the biblical lens in which people are all created in the image of God? It, it makes a difference, and I've showed you some of the results of that difference last time, and we'll talk about more of them this time. Uh, there are consequences. Um, and one of the consequences we, we focused on last time, and we'll talk more about this time, is racism. It's a particular manifestation of the sin of partiality, and it's an act of rebellion against God, like all, all sin is. Uh, the solution is repentance followed by obedience to God, something that is only possible in Christ. Uh, we talked about that last time. The secular humanist worldview, people evolved from these ape-like ancestors, and, the, and there is no reason from within that worldview. If you actually stuck to that worldview... There is no reason within that worldview um, why one people group could, could, wouldn't be more evolved than another people group. Uh, and there's no reason within that worldview 
why the lighter shaded accidents of evolution shouldn't mistreat or even own the darker shade accidents of evolution, or vice versa. Um, and I'm, I, I want to be clear that, that people don't, people that have a Darwinian worldview, they, they don't actually believe that it's okay now. They, they did once, but it's, they, have to, they have to step outside of their own worldview um, to do so. It, within their own worldview, there's not a foundation for treating people with dignity and respect. Uh, that foundation comes from the biblical worldview. And so in order to live in polite society, they have to sneak in in the middle of the night and steal lumber from our worldview in order to treat people with dignity and respect. The, the wherewithal to treat people with dignity and respect does not exist within their worldview. They have to steal it from us. Because within the Darwinian worldview, it's the survival of the fittest, what might makes right. And I'll show you, we're going to talk today about one of the, one of the things that comes out of actually applying that to human beings in real life. Uh, survival of the fittest. Um, okay, so uh, I showed you a couple of quotes. Most of the material that, that I'm going through in last lesson and this lesson and the next two is from a book called One Race, One, Race, One Blood. It's written, it's co-written by two authors, uh, Dr. Charles Ware and uh, Ken Ham. And so this is Dr. Charles Ware. He's one of the authors, and this is one of his quotes from the book. Uh, At the central core of racism, we find the sinful hearts of men living in a fallen world. This fundamental problem has no earthly cure. So um, you can't find a cure to one person hating another person outside of Christ. Um, and Ken Ham, there's another uh, quote from Ken Ham from the same book. He's the other author, um, and he says that you've got to believe the Bible and its account of history of mankind and the problems that humans have and the solution that's given in the Bible. That's the bottom line. You can spend millions of dollars trying to solve racist problems. You can pass new laws and institute all sorts of programs. But unless people believe God's word in regard to history and salvation, unless our minds are renewed, we will never have the full picture of reality. We won't have the foundation that we need to make decisions that line up with truth rather than the lie. Uh, So that's what we were talking about last time. And so in order to really solve the problem of racism, we need to have our thinking aligned with God's word. That's what we need. So I I gave you this quote from uh, Washingtonian magazine, a rat is a pig is a dog is a boy. Um, So we talked about, we gave some, I gave some quotes from, Evolutionists and from the results of evolution, uh, Stephen Jay Gold in his book uh, Ontogeny and Phylogeny says biological arguments for racism may have been common before 1850, but they increased by orders of magnitude following the acceptance of evolutionary theory. So Stephen Jay Gold is an atheist evolutionist, uh, and that's what he says. He's not a Christian. Um, he's not a creationist by any stretch of the imagination. He's a, an atheist evolutionist. And this is what he says in his book, because he is interested in the truth and not trying to cover it up. Um, the, the science of evolutionary biology drove racist arguments uh, in the late 1800s and the early 1900s. Um, so I talked about Darwin's second book. His first book is Origin of Species, 1859. His second book published 
in the 1870s was Descent of Man. Um, and so he left people deliberately out of his first book, uh, Origin of Species, because he knew it would be controversial. Once his, his ideas had gained traction, he wrote a second book called Descent of Man, uh, where he said that the civilized races of man will almost certainly exterminate and replace the savage races. And by savage races, he meant dark-skinned people. That's what he meant. Um, and he said the Negro or Australian um, and the gorilla. Um, and so this is the, if you follow the secular humanist Darwinian worldview to its logical conclusion, this is where it goes. Now, in today's modern world, people have been able to uh, kind of separate themselves from this logical conclusion because everybody now can see where that goes. And it goes someplace that nobody wants to go. Uh, but this is where this worldview logically leads nonetheless. Um, and so here in the United States, um, we had in the 20th century... Uh, textbooks. So these are this is a high school biology textbook. So this is being taught in science classes. So I made this. Uh, I wanted to make this point last time that this is not being put forth as somebody's opinion, but as scientific fact in science class in biology class about these different races and the fact that they not only do we have these different races, but they are there's a hierarchy of them. Um, and the hierarchy, according to the biology textbook being taught to young kids in 20th century America, was that civilized white inhabitants of Europe and America were at the top of this uh, evolutionary pyramid uh, of races in the world. Um, and it just so happens that that particular biology textbook was one that was the center of the Scopes trial in 1925. That was the biology textbook that they were teaching in Dayton, Tennessee, um, that Christians objected to and didn't want to be taught to their kids in school. But the ACLU said, oh yes, this is science. Science is scientific fact. We've got to teach this to the kids. Uh, you science-denying hick Christians, we've got to teach this scientific fact to the kids. Um, and so there, there were, and the, then of course this led to other results. Um, the, the fact is that because of this and because of the science of eugenics, um, in the 20th century, this is in the 20th century, we're not talking about before the Civil War or during the Civil War, I'm talking about in the 20th century here in America, we had uh, 27 states had laws against so-called mixed-race marriages. And it was because of this, because of what was being taught in biology science classes. Um, we had the forced sterilization of 60,000 U.S. citizens here in the United States in the 20th century. We're not talking about the 1800s. We're not talking about the Civil War. We're talking about the 20th century, United States of America, 60,000 U.S. citizens forced sterilization because they were unfit to breed. And the language was specifically Darwinian language, the fitness fitness. It was people that were determined to be, or somebody decided, were less fit than others. In a Darwinian sense, they were less than. Some people were less than, and therefore 
not fit to breed, and they were forcefully sterilized, 60,000 people. It was centered in California. uh, The the largest number were in California. California was the center of U.S. eugenics. So not the Deep South, not some place that was a, a slave state, California. And it was pushed by the intellectual elite, Stanford University in particular, but also... Uh, biologists from Harvard and Yale, but Stanford, yeah. This is what was pushed, and it was pushed because of ideas. The idea that Darwinian evolution was true, and we need to make sure we apply it to human beings. And so we need to get rid of people that are less fit, and we need to encourage breeding in people that are more fit. These ideas are, are dangerous ideas. Terrible ideas. Um, in the biblical worldview, uh, there's no, there is no concept of races. There's no, it doesn't fit the biblical story that everybody's descended from Noah and their, and their his three sons a few thousand years ago. It just doesn't fit. Uh, and I don't think we should even use the term. Uh, I mean, there's certain circumstances where you have to use it to be understood in the discussion, but. Uh, we should not, within the church, be promoting this idea that there is even such thing as races of people. It's dangerous and ugly. Um, okay, so I think we should trash that whole whole term. Uh, the sin of partiality, of course, is, is uh, described in the Bible, uh, treating one person differently from another because of how they look. And the Bible uses uh, how, they, how they dress or how what their economic status is. Uh, and says that it's a sin. If you show partiality, you are committing sin. Very clear, book of James. Uh, it, you know, it's, it's very clear from the Christian worldview that that's wrong. And then he points out, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of all. So if you're guilty of this particular sin, it's, uh, it, it's uh, the same as being guilty of, of every sin. Okay. So that was what we talked about last time. And in fact, a couple of those things we didn't quite get to last time, so I wanted to make sure I talked about them today. So new stuff, uh, part two of four parts. So I want to go back, circle back to science. And so uh, because a particular branch of science has been used to justify horrible things in the recent past, doesn't mean we just throw all science out. I want to be clear about that. Um, but when, we, when I did the very first lesson uh, 23 weeks ago, uh, I showed you this slide. Um, all science, scientific observations are done in the present. Unless you have a time machine, if you're doing a scientific observation, it's done now. So all scientific. There are two really separate, distinct branches of science. There's operational science, which is applying present observations to draw conclusions about the present. That gets us uh, computers and, spa- and spaceships and um, all sorts of technology, um, this operational science. Historical science is, or forensic science is spectacularly different. It's applying present observations filtered through philosophical assumptions to make guesses about the past. And evolutionary biology is a historical science. Uh, you can't observe in the present that all the stuff that evolutionists say happened millions of years ago. It's a historical science, a forensic science, trying to make guesses about, so you see a fossil in the present, 
and you make a guess about what it was like or how it got to be in your hands in the present. Um, that's historical science. It's totally different. And the things that I'm talking about being real problems um, in terms of the philosophical impact are all historical science. I'm not saying we should ignore physics and chemistry. I'm not saying you should ignore any science, but you should be skeptical of historical science, especially when it contradicts the Bible. So the Bible tells us historical facts, things that happened in the past, the way things were, the way the what God did. When you come across a statement that's made based on historical science and it contradicts what God said in his word, well, that historical science is wrong. There's no two ways to, to, to go about saying that. It's wrong. Um, and... So, the other thing to remember is, science does not speak. Only scientists speak. And every scientist is a fallen human being like you and I. Um, So, if you ever hear or read something like, science says, then then your antenna should go up. A red flag should be raised. Because science does not say anything. Only a scientist who's a fallen human being, says anything. Okay, Uh, so there's no potential for conflict. There's no conflict between the Bible and operational science, physics and chemistry. Uh, Only historical science, where poor assumptions can lead to poor guesses, can be set up against the truths of the Bible. Okay, Uh, clash of worldviews. Let's go back to that. Ideas are like seeds. They might seem small and insignificant, like a tiny seed, and it might even go unnoticed, but plant it in the ground. Plant the seed in the ground. Plant the seed of an idea in the mind. Ideas and seeds are incredibly powerful. Ideas planted in the fertile soil of the human mind grow into the thoughts and convictions of mankind. They become the culture of mankind. In 1859, Charles Darwin, without the insight of modern genetics and supported by superficial observations, published the history-altering book, The Origin of Species. He conceptualized a world where life spontaneously came into being and then changed over time by the forces of nature into the complexity and diversity of life we see now on this planet. That idea has consequences. His idea became planted in the minds of others. The idea took root first in the scientific community, Then the idea found its way into the fields of education system of our young, as I showed you with that uh, biology textbook here in the United States of America. The seeds of this idea then spread to the laws of government. We had laws, eugenics laws, based on this science of evolutionary biology. We had laws in the 20th century because of this that outlawed interracial marriages in 27 states. We had 60,000 U.S. citizens who were forcefully sterilized, legally sterilized against their own will. Um, That's the law, this idea of penetrating the laws of government. Uh, And finally, the roots began to infiltrate the mind of the church. So the church abandoned the teaching of the biblical creation. Um, Many, many churches... Uh, 
um, have abandoned the teaching of biblical creation. Um, and it began to choke out the faith that many held in the Word of God, and especially among the young. Um, because if, if you look at it critically, if you look at it from the eye of critical thinking, if this Bible is wrong about the creation of the world, then why should we trust what it says about Jesus and salvation? Same Bible. Um, and so many, many people within the church came to that conclusion and, and left the church and left Christianity because science had proved that the account in Genesis of the creation was, in fact, wrong. Um, this choked the faith of many people in the Word of God. When this idea took root in the minds of churches and seminaries, starting in Europe and then coming to the U.S., uh, and it didn't take long for the fruit of this garden to ripen, and nowhere has this been more obvious than in the area of racism. History has shown how evolutionary thought fuels racism, and racists use evolution to justify their hatred. And I want to show you a very specific example. So, um, Adolf Hitler became the head of the Nazi party in Germany in 1921. And, and then he had a failed coup attempt called the Beer Hall Putsch. And he was put in prison. And from prison, in 1924, what did he do? He wrote a book from prison in 1924 called Mein Kampf, uh, My Struggle. And that book laid out his agenda and his plan for uh, Nazi Germany. Um, and it was, and there were, and he, it, it's clear from the book that he has two heroes, that Adolf Hitler had two heroes. One is Friedrich Nietzsche, and the other is Charles Darwin. And he was trying to lay out a vision for Germany based on the ideas of Darwin and Nietzsche. Darwin's idea of um, survival of the fittest, and, 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 and he, got, he got a lot of his ideas about how to do that from the American eugenics movement. So the American eugenics movement in the early 1900s had developed and developed and developed, and, and, the, and the premise was, okay, we know this evolution, Darwinian evolution, is true, and we know how it works with animals, and, and it's always onward and upward, right? You, you get better and better and better animals because of the survival of the fittest. But with human beings, we've kind of short-circuited Darwin by, by helping the less fit to survive especially those, those dumb Christians, because they help the poor. And the poor then survive and have kids instead of dying off like they're supposed to. This, this is the idea of eugenics, that, that, um, that people have interfered with the Darwinian mechanism when it comes to human beings by saving those who don't deserve to survive, or in the Darwinian sense would not survive. They're not the fittest, and so they wouldn't survive. But, but we have this, this charitable impulse as human beings, and, and we help the poor, and we help the downtrodden, we help those who are um, the, the, the uh, mentally unfit, the, the, the people with disabilities. We, we help these people, and they don't die off like they're supposed to. And so the eugenics movement was created to correct that, correct for that, to get rid of the unfit. 
to sterilize them. So they made laws to sterilize people that they said were unfit. And I'll, see, I'll show you in just a minute that one of the major outgrowths was the, of that was uh, Planned Parenthood and the abortion industry, because that was the other part of it, is to, if you couldn't sterilize them, well, then you need to kill their children before they're born, uh, the people that are unfit. Um, so the whole idea was to, to make sure we apply Darwinian principles to human beings. That was the idea of eugenics. And that arose in America. Francis Galton was the, uh, the original guy that, that thought it up. Francis Galton was a cousin of Charles Darwin. And he was the first proponent of eugenics. Hey, we need to make sure we apply this to human beings, the survival of the fittest. So we've got to get rid of the unfit. Uh, Francis Galton in 1863 said that. Uh, but it really took root in America, especially in California. Um, and Hitler noticed Hitler read what the eugenicists in America were writing and got ideas for Mein Kampf from American eugenicists. So I got this information from uh, George Washington University. George Washington University here in D.C. has a, uh, has a, a thing called uh, the history, uh, let's see, what is it called? Um, the history net, the historical net they've got. Uh, it's a website of George Washington University, and they post all sorts of historical um, documents and articles. And there's an article about this topic, about how Hitler read American eugenics and, and wrote them directly into Mein Kampf. Um, and so that's where a lot of Hitler's ideas, to our great and everlasting shame, came from the American eugenics movement. Um, okay. So around the same time, in the uh, beginning in the 18, uh, 1920s and going forward into the 1930s, um, Planned Parenthood was founded by a Darwinian racist eugenicist named Margaret Sanger. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about Margaret Sanger now, and most of the information I have about Margaret Sanger is from this book, which I would strongly recommend, Margaret Sanger's Eugenic Legacy. Uh, the Control of Female Fertility. It's by a, a woman named Angela Franks. Um, if you haven't read that book, it's a good book to, to look at, to see where this came from, to see where Planned... She's the founder. Margaret Sanger is the founder of Planned Parenthood. And she explicitly promoted abortion among those she considered human weeds. That was her term, human weeds, uh, for people that were less than, people that didn't deserve to survive. Um, and so she founded Planned Parenthood to try to get rid of these human weeds. That was her purpose. She was a, an ardent eugenicist, um, and she founded Planned Parenthood for that purpose, to get rid of human weeds. Uh, now, there have been consequences to all that. Since 1973, abortion has been the biggest cause of death by far among black, black people in the USA. There's a, there's a very interesting website called blackgenocide.org. All, one word, blackgenocide.org, and it has all this, these statistics on there. Um, uh, minority women are only 13% of the female population, but they underwent approximately 36% of abortions. Uh, according to the Alan Guttmacher Institute, which is the, um, it's the research arm of Planned Parenthood. So this is Planned Parenthood's stats from the Alan Guttmacher Institute. Black women are more than five times as likely as white women to have an abortion. 
on average, 1,876 black babies are aborted every day in the United States. And even after the latest Supreme Court cases, um, many states, of course, still allow abortions, and some all the way up to, to birth. Uh, Maryland is one of the worst, uh, has one of the most, uh, uh, the, the least restrictive abortion laws. Um, and so this didn't stop because of the Dobbs decision and uh, the Supreme Court. Um, that same website says that um, uh, since 1970, this is a few years old, um, this information. It's more now. Uh, since 1973, black women have had 16 million abortions. Uh, since the number of living black people is 36 million, and the missing 16 million is an enormous percentage. Um, America's black community should be much bigger than it is. Uh, instead of 36 million, it should be 52 million. Um, so abortion has swept through the black community like a sieve, cutting down every fourth member. Um, and so what this tells you is Margaret Sanger's original vision is working. You know, she, she decided who was the, the human weeds and who was not worthy to reproduce. And she instituted Planned Parenthood and she put the Planned Parenthood, their centers, where they put them on purpose. Uh, you can look at a map and see where they are. Um, so, uh, in addition to Planned Parenthood, she also started something that she called, uh, I apologize for the language, so the language is dated, and, and I know there's some offensive terms in here, uh, so the language is from a long time ago, um, and she called this, this initiative of hers, uh, she called it the Negro Project. This was the project to... Uh, emphasize abortion in the black community, and it and it and it worked. It worked spectacularly from her perspective. You could see the statistics. Anyway, she wrote a letter in December of 1939 to Dr. Clarence Gamble, and she saw resistance. She saw that there was some resistance in the black community to abortion. Um, and she said this in her letter, it seems to me from my experience that while the colored Negroes have great respect for white doctors, they can get closer to their own members and more or less lay their cards on the table, which means their ignorance, superstition, and doubt. So the only, the only reason why you would resist abortion is ignorance, superstition, that would lead to doubts. That's what she's saying. And here's her solution. We should hire three or four colored ministers preferably with social service backgrounds and with engaging personalities. The most successful educational approach to the Negro is through a religious appeal. So she deliberately went to black clergy and said, can you help me sell abortion to the black community? Uh, hired them, paid them to, to be shills for abortion in the black community. And we see this, it still happens today. This is still happening. Uh, there are still black clergy that are cheerleading for abortion. Um, and so at the end of the letter, she says this, we don't want the word to go out that we want to exterminate the Negro population, and the minister is the man who can straighten out that idea if it ever occurs to any of their more rebellious members. So if anybody rebels to us feeding them into the cattle chute and taking them to slaughter, then... 
we have this plan to overcome these rebellious members that don't want to be fed into the cattle chute and taken to slaughter. Um, th this is a cold, calculating woman, uh, Margaret Sanger. Um, in 1926, Margaret Sanger spoke to a meeting of the Women's Auxiliary of the Ku Klux Klan in Silver Lake, New Jersey. Uh, she describes the event in her autobiography. So this is a quote from Margaret Sanger's own autobiography. She says, I accepted an invitation to talk to the women's branch of the Ku Klux Klan. I saw through the door dim figures parading with banners and illuminated crosses. I was escorted to the platform, was introduced, and began to speak. In the end, through simple illustrations, I believed I had accomplished my purpose. A dozen invitations to speak to similar groups were proffered. So this is the woman. This is the woman who founded Planned Parenthood. She founded it for a purpose, um, and she has been wildly successful in her purpose. Um, now, uh, the, I, I, I cut and paste this from the Planned Parenthood website. Um, right now, this is on the Planned Parenthood website. The Margaret Sanger Award is an honor awarded annually by the Planned Parenthood Federation of America since 1966 created to honor the legacy of Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood. It is the Federation's highest honor. It is given to individuals to recognize excellence and leadership in the reproductive health and rights movement. So ideas have consequences. And so Planned Parenthood says their highest award is to give somebody the Margaret Sanger Award. This is, this is a horrific human being. Terrible, terrible, terrible human being. Um, but right now, this is on their website. Now, it's very interesting that they actually have not given this award since 2015. This annual award, and it still says that on their website, but they haven't given it to anybody since 2015. Why do you think that is? Well, it, it's starting to be embarrassing even to Planned Parenthood to be associated with this woman. Um, and there's even one branch of Planned Parenthood, the New York branch of Planned Parenthood, that said, we don't want to have anything to do with Margaret Sanger. Um, so we'll see where this goes in the future. But this is the woman who founded Planned Parenthood, and she founded it for a purpose, and the purpose was a eugenics purpose. And eugenics is to apply the principles of Darwinian evolution to human beings on purpose. And specifically, and you can read it in this book here about Margaret Sanger, the many things that she said about how terrible it is that Christians engage in charity to the poor, for example. Um, because that short circuits Darwinian evolution for people. If we keep saving these poor and indigent, the, the less fit, and if we keep, and we keep uh, this, this Christian charity that keeps them alive to the point where they can actually breed, then we will, we've short-circuited evolution and, and people won't be able to continue to go onward and upward as Darwin intended. Um, and so this idea, I just want you to get this idea that, that ideas have consequences. It's just not an academic debate. Uh, when people start to believe this idea of evolution, uh, it has terrible consequences, deathly consequences. Um, and I want to finish. This is one last example I'll give you. And so 
there's a man, there was a man named Ota Benga, and uh, his family was killed and he was taken as a slave. And he lived in the Bronx Zoo in the monkey house as a human exhibit in the zoo. And so this was up to 1916. Um, and so this was 20, 20th century America. And once again, not in the South. This is New York City, 20th century America. We had a man in the monkey cage at the zoo. And why is that? And it's because science says, it said, the science of biology said that this man was less than. This man was evolutionarily closer to the monkeys than he was to other people. And so we put him in a monkey cage in the zoo in 20th century America. Now, my grandmother was born in 1915, and she died in 2019 at the age of 104. And so I used to give this lecture and say, my grandmother is still alive, and this happened during her lifetime in the United States of America. Uh, now she's passed away a couple years ago. But still, this happened in the lifetime of my grandmother in the United States of America. We had a man in the zoo. So ideas have consequences. We put a man in the zoo because science said, evolutionary biology said he was less than. Um, but the Bible says otherwise. The Bible says that Odabenga descended from the three sons of Noah on the ark, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, just like everybody in this room. Odabenga was our close relative, every single one of us in this room. And we put him in a civilized society. We put him in a cage in a zoo. It was the consensus science taught to young people in their biology textbooks. The media endorsed it. And speaking out against it made you anti-science. Um, so, there's an excellent video called Human Zoos. Um, uh, you can look it up on YouTube, Human Zoos, which has a video about this. Yes, go ahead. Uh, just to kind of uh, put all this in a big perspective, you know, this, this, as you say, this ideas have consequences. Um, it's, not, it's not inherently wrong to have assumptions, but those assumptions need to be Tested yes. Actual facts. So um, people have forever, I guess, uh, conjectured about origins, and it's a natural thing. Where did everything come from? And uh, certainly by today, I can't speak directly about Darwin, but certainly today, um, people readily believe evolution is true because they know there's only one alternative. And that one alternative is that they're created. And if they're created, they're accountable to their creator. They don't want to accept that. So they're willing to believe anything so that they don't have to believe what's staring them in the face. Right. And so one of the things, an example of that is you talk about abortion, is the contention that that blob inside that woman is not a human being. Just 
flying in the face of all science, all good science, would tell you that is a distinct human being in there. But they're willing to believe the lie because the alternative means they're accountable to Almighty God. Right. Yeah, that's a great point. And so, yeah, that is the bottom line, is people are will flee from the accountability to their creator, and they'll uh, flee to absurdities, as... Uh, as Alan put it. Good, good, very good point. So, uh, so this has been very dark and heavy. I apologize for that. Um, let me go back to the biblical worldview. So if only eight people were on the ark, where did all the races come from? Why, why do we have such diversity of human beings if everybody came out, if everybody's descended from who came off the ark? There's only eight people. Um, how do we look like we do today? Um, well, what does the term race even mean? So um, this is a family here, and these girls are twins. They're twins. Uh, there's the mother and the other picture is the mother and father and the twins. They're twins. They're not just sisters. They're twins. So are you going to tell me that these twin sisters are different races? And have that term even mean anything? They're twins. So it, 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 it's ludicrous, preposterous to say, well, no, we've got to take this girl and say, well, she's a totally different race than this one. And they're twins. Ridiculous. There's a picture of them a little bit later in life. Uh, twins. They're twins. So what is this term that the world uses of race and tries to divide people by skin shade? It, it breaks down in the face of reality. It doesn't fit reality. It, it's, 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 anti, it's anti-reality ridiculous. It's ludicrous. It's preposterous to, to say that within... To try to break up twins and say they're in different races and have that term race even mean anything. Uh, there's a, this is a different set. This is not the same. This is a different set of twin girls. Um, so how does that happen? So if we look at the, uh, the study of genetics, um, and this is a, what's called a Pune square. Human skin shade is controlled by at least three melanin-producing genes, which are all incompletely dominant. And so if you have a mother and a father who are both heterozygous for these three genes, then this is the Pune square that you get. They can have kids all the way from very dark skin to very light skin. Uh, but notice one thing. Notice that we are all brown. Every single person is brown. Um, some are lighter colored brown, some are darker colored brown, but everybody's brown. Nobody is white, nobody is black, everybody's brown. Because everybody has everybody's skin is colored by melanin, and melanin is brown. And so, if you have a very limited amount of melanin, then you're light brown. If you have a, 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 an abundance of melanin, then you're dark brown. But everybody's brown. Um, and genetics tells us that if you have parents who have um, a robust amount of genetic information for um, for these three genes and are heterozygous in those three genes, then they can have, in one generation, they can have this. They can have twins. Who One twin 
has very light brown skin and the other twin has very dark brown skin because this is what the genetics looks like. So one twin is more like down here somewhere, the other twin is up here somewhere, and you have twins that have very different skin shades. And so what, what else does that tell you? That tells you that, for example, um, this little girl and I have maybe a similar skin shade, but she is much closer to her twin sister genetically than she is to me. So, and that, that is the case for everybody. You, you could very well be much closer genetically to somebody that has a much different skin shade than you are to somebody who has a similar skin shade. See what I'm saying? It, it's definitely the case with these two. They're twins. They're really close genetically. Um, and so skin shade is relatively insignificant when it comes to a genetic difference. Genetic, it's a very, very small genetic difference for different skin shades. It's a completely illogical way to separate people into groups, is the point I want to make. Um, so, and it's unbiblical, and it leads to terrible consequences. So, in the church, for certain, we should not be doing it. We shouldn't be talking about separating people into races inside the church. That's definitely wrong. Okay, um, we talked about human genome before. Uh, it's it's a very that those three genes uh, out of thirty thousand genes in a haploid cell, sixty thousand genes in a diploid cell. Those three genes are insignificant. So skin shade is an insignificant little tiny bit of your human genome. Who you are as a human being. Um, so. Um, this is a picture of girls at the Washington International Primary School, right here in Washington, D.C. It's on 36th Street in Washington, D.C. Um, what do you notice about these girls? So they've got them lined up by skin shade, from lighter skin shade to darker skin shade. What the, here's, here's one of the things I want you to notice. The skin shade is continuous. Skin shade is continuous from very light to very dark. There's no break. There's no break where there's a, a group that's all very light skin, there's a group that's always all very dark skin. It's a continuous spectrum all the way across at the school and in our society. There's no break. There's no place where I can draw a line and say everybody over here is a, uh, is, can be grouped into a, a, a group by skin shade and everybody over here is grouped into the other group by skin shade. It, you can't do that in reality because it's a continuous spectrum. Very light brown to very dark brown. Yes? You know, this, uh, this is capturing our national attention right now in the fact that uh, there are two quarterbacks in the Super Bowl that happen to be more on the right side of that. But even there, one of them is far more closer to the middle of that scale than the other one. Yeah, so Patrick Mahomes in particular, um, his, his mother would be identified as uh, Caucasian, and his father would be um, uh, classified as African American. Um, yeah, so, yeah, so, but the point is, yes, it's, it's, it's a continuous spectrum, 
there, there is really no place to draw a line and say everybody over there is one group and everybody over here is not. No, everybody's an individual and they're on a spectrum from light brown to dark brown and it is continuous. There's no break. Okay, a uh, little melanin on the left, much melanin on, on the right gives uh, uh, different uh, skin shades. We get different variations of eye shapes. Uh, but the biological fact is where all humans belong to one race. Um, and the, the, the question is, are we going to look at people and see them through God's word as truth or that man decides truth? Um, and so there aren't really races. Uh, in fact, in the New Testament, we hear in Acts chapter 17, uh, that and he, God, has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. In other words, this is a restatement of the biological fact that people are all one race. And uh, the fact that we learn from the book of Genesis, from Genesis 1 to 11, uh, that people are all from this one family. They were all family members together. So uh, I showed you this before. Adam and Eve, sons and daughters, Noah and sons, people of the Tower of Babel split out into different people groups. So uh, from the Tower of Babel, people spread out. And they spread out in small groups. And those small groups, in many cases, uh, because they were isolated from other small groups, determined, uh, developed certain physical characteristics. But um, before too long in the human story, people started to encounter one another again. After the initial separation, people started to encounter and mix among one another again. Um, and so we talked about languages before. We, there's, uh, there were at least 78 families that came out from uh, Babel based on the, uh, the genealogies. And so we have about 6,900 languages today, but they're grouped into what the uh, professionals who study languages say is something like 95 to 100 language families. Um, and so we have all these different families that we learned about in Genesis chapter 10. Uh, some of the families, we got more information than others. So, for example, the sons of Japheth, uh, Gomer, Magog, Medai, Javan, Tubal, um, Meshach, and Tiras, we only get their grandchildren from two of them. But there were most likely grandchildren and great-grandchildren and great-grandchildren in families spread out from all of those um, descendants of Japheth, just like there were from Shem and just like there were from Ham. And so there were family groups, something like maybe a hundred uh, family groups that went out from uh, Babel, and we see that in the languages, in people that study languages, even though there are seven, six, six, nine, or 7,000 languages identified, they can be traced back to about less than 100 language groups, which really correspond to these family groups that existed, that we know existed from Genesis chapter 10 uh, at the time of the Tower of Babel. Uh, we also see things like ziggurats that look very similar all over the world. Ancient cultures all over the world have these step pyramid looking things. Uh, how in the world could that happen in the, the Olmecs in South America and the, uh, the people at Angkor Wat in Cambodia? Um, those places are massively separated in geographical location, 
but they had the same exact, almost as very, very similar looking step pyramids they built. Uh, how could that be? Except that we know that they all spread out from, the te- from Babel and that they had built a thing that looked like they had at Babel. And when they took their cultures around to separate it all over the world, they built them again. They were dumb enough to build them again. Um, okay. Yeah. Um, I told you about this book by uh, Bill Cooper called After the Flood, where he traced genealogies. There are many genealogies in, in uh, the British Isles and other places in Europe that can trace their genealogies back to uh, Japheth, um, and therefore back to Noah, and therefore back to Adam. Uh, so those genealogies actually exist today. Um, how did they travel? We, we talked about this a little bit when we were talking about uh, Genesis chapter 10, um, that during the Ice Age, the uh, various, various scientists have made calculations about how much ice. Now, these are guesses, how much ice was in those glaciers. Um, and if you take that much water to make the glaciers in North America and in Northern Europe then how, how much would that lower the sea level by taking that much water out of the oceans and putting it in ice on the continents? And the consensus seems to be about 300 feet. Lower, it would lower the sea level about 300 feet from where we are today. And if you do that, if you go around and you lower the sea level 300 feet everywhere around the globe, then an interesting thing happens. You get land bridges all over the world to places that today are isolated, but if you lower the sea level 300 feet, they're not isolated. Like you can walk from Asia into North America, for example. Uh, You can walk from the Middle East into Australia, for example, into the Philippines, for example. Um, So uh, one more thing, one more I want to show you. So the Olmec people, South America... Um, the, the predecessors to the Mayans or the Olmec people. And the Olmec people have ancient tradition, had an ancient tradition, uh, that they came by boat from the east. So what's the, the east of South America? Africa. Um, there's a couple of interesting things to this story. One is the Olmec language is very similar to a West African language called Mendi. Isn't that interesting? Um, Also, the prevailing ocean current, even today, if you got in a boat in West Africa, where would the current take you? It takes you to South America. And that's what the Olmec legend says, that they came by boat from Africa, from the east. Um, Anyway, it fits. It fits the available data. And the fact that the language that the Olmecs spoke is very similar to a language from West Africa, um, then there you have an, a possible answer of how one of the ways that they got there, it, the only way it wouldn't necessarily have been a land bridge like that and coming all the way down to South America. Uh, the Olmec people themselves say, say that they came there by boat. Um, and the currents fit. Uh, the prevailing current fits. Okay. Uh, uh, I said one more thing, and I, I lied. Um, the ages decreased, uh, most likely a genetic bottleneck. I can't. Well, I won't spend too much time on that. All I'll do is show you that um, um, that they did decrease, kind of in a stepwise fashion. The the three generations after Shem were all lived into their 400s. 
Our vaccine, Sheila and Eber, 438, 433, and 463, an average of 445 years. The three generations after Babel. Now, after Babel, you have another genetic bottleneck, right? You have people groups in small clumps again. So at, at the, the flood, the whole population next down to eight. And then it starts to spread out again. And then you have more genetic bottlenecks. People clump together in very small people groups as they spread out from Babel. And you have another decrease in ages after Babel, um, down to the 200s. 239, Pelig, Ryu, and Syrug are the three generations after Babel, 239, 239, and 230, an average of 236 years. Uh, the average lifespan drops another 200 years right after Babel. Um, so interesting. Uh, ancestor worship, there's lots of history of ancestor worship in, in cultures all around the world. Uh, and if you have your, uh, your ancestors out living their great-great-great-grandchildren like Eber did and, and uh, so forth, Shem did, uh, it makes sense that they're being elevated to the status of gods or immortals. Uh, so let's take a look. I want to use the last couple of minutes to talk about unity in the spirit. Uh, we'll pick up on this next time. I don't, I don't have too much time to cover it today. So, in fact, why don't I just save it till next time? We're going to talk about the unity in the spirit that, uh, that's the true unity that we experience in Jesus, Jesus Christ. So we have two sets of unities. One is the unity of mankind as the fact that we are all descended from the, uh, this, this three sons of Noah that came off the ark. We're all close family members as a matter of uh, biological fact. But we also have an additional unity in the church that's even more important, that the Bible describes as even more important, uh, and that's the unity in the spirit. And we'll pick up there uh, next time. So uh, we have a couple minutes for questions. So anybody have any questions about this kind of heavy topic? Yes. Uh, the woke movement. So uh, the, the woke movement, I think, is... I'm not sure if it's tied directly to eugenics. Um, it's, it's an, it's, I think it's an outspring of a secular humanist worldview and trying to make sense of uh, the various chaos that has arised in our, in our culture and trying to make sense of it without the Bible as a foundation. Um, and so with the Bible as a foundation, we know who we are as human beings. We know who all, everybody else is as a human being. They're created in the image of God and they're fallen. And the fact that we are all sinful, anytime we live, if, if you live in a, in, under a roof with a husband and wife, or if you live in a neighborhood, or you live in a culture, a society, uh, the fact of sin is going to create friction and problems. Um, if, you try to, uh, if you try to characterize problems that arise, in, in, a, in a manner that doesn't take into account sin and the fallen nature of man, then you come up with uh, a bad analysis and you come up with bad solutions, solutions that don't work. And I think that's the work movement. The work movement is trying to figure out what, where problems in society came from without sin, without taking into account sin, and that'll never, that'll never work. Um, and I, that's that's how I see the the, the woke movement. Yep. Okay. Anybody else? <clears throat> well, I heard it described as cultural Marxism. Yeah. So uh, yeah. So cultural Marxism. Uh, that's a whole other lecture. I, I actually have a whole series of lectures on uh, 
that where that came from, cultural Marxism, Antonio Gramsci, an Italian Marxist. So uh, just a 30-second version. Um, after 1919 and the Russian Revolution, um, the, the Marxists believed that then every other country would fall and become Marxist. And, and it didn't happen. And, and they were searching around for, well, why didn't it happen and what can we do to make it happen? And the answer was what they called cultural Marxism. So traditional Marxism is, is solely focused on economics. Is We've got um, an oppressor-oppressed dynamic between uh, the capitalists that have and the proletariat that have not. So an oppressor and oppressed in, on strictly economic terms. Cultural Marxism said, well, we need to... Uh, we need to proliferate this oppressor-oppressed dynamic uh, idea into other areas of culture. And so we have, to, we have to, for example, we have to sell this notion that uh, based on um, gender, there's an oppressor and oppressed. There's a patriarchy and the men are oppressing the women. We have to also sell the idea that there is a racial component where you have an oppressed and oppressor. Um, so the, the one race is oppressing the other race. Uh, and this is called cultural Marxism, that we, we extend the economic oppressor and oppressed dynamic or paradigm into all other areas of culture. And everybody's got to fit. Everyone in society is either an oppressor or oppressed. And we need to fit everybody into those categories based on not just economics, but also on race and sex and everything else we can think of, gender identity. Everybody's either in the oppressed class, the oppressor class, or the oppressed class. And that's cultural Marxism. Antonio Gramsci, 1926, came up with that. The Frankfurt School uh, in Frankfurt, Germany. And then when the Nazis rose to power, a lot of them were Jewish. They moved to the U.S., the Frankfurt School. And they, sold, they, they entrenched this idea into uh, American economic structure, especially higher education, this idea of cultural Marxism, oppressor-oppressed dynamic, and applying it to every single area of culture. That's, uh, that's cultural Marxism. Okay, uh, that's a whole other set of lectures. Um, yeah, any, any other questions before we go? Let me, let me close this in prayer.